Take your copy of the Scriptures, open with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to be picking up in verse 30. Let me just set the context. Reminder, uh, the writer of the Hebrews is giving a series of examples of those who lived by faith and persisted in faith even while living under duress and under difficulty the writer the reader of the readers of the hebrew letter were those who were inclined to leave christ move away from christ because they were being persecuted and the writer is giving them multiple examples from the old testament of those who persisted in faith it is notable that while he talks about moses starting in verse 23 um, there's a 40-year gap between verses 29 and 30 because that was a generation that rebelled against God, against Kadesh, at, at Kadesh Barnea and refused to go into the land. And then he picks up the story again in verse 30 with Joshua, though Joshua is unnamed, and Jericho. Let me read starting in verse 23 through verse 31. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Would you bow with me? Our Father, we thank you for the morning, for the privilege of worship, for the privilege of gathering together to be reminded of your worthiness to be worshipped, of the requirement to worship, of the joy in worship. We're reminded this day of the greatness of your character, the greatness of all that you do, your wisdom in all that you do, and even as we will see this morning, your providential, kind, wise, great care of your people. Even as we pray these things, we would also lift up our brother David Gibson to you and entrust him and the translation of the Finney language to you. The finish line is in sight for the New Testament for these dear people. And it's dependent on on you acting so that the men who aren't there today would arrive shortly so that they can finish this translation. We don't know where they are. We don't know why they have been delayed. But you know. You know exactly where they are. And you know exactly how to get them where they need to be. And would you, in your grace and kindness and providence, Uh, Take them to David and the other translator and that they'd be able to finish this project so that they would have a New Testament in their hands 
and that they would be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to those among them who do not believe. And we entrust that to you. It's been a long project, and he's traveled a long way. Now, would you, would you be gracious to bring the men there who need to be there? And this set of stories that we're going to look at this morning is a reminder that this is not a difficult task for you. Just as nothing in our lives is too difficult for you, but you are eminently worthy, eminently great, eminently, eminently capable of doing everything that we need you to do. And so we trust you with David. We trust you with our own lives, with our own hearts. And you would accomplish your purposes in us and through us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. In his book, Is the Blue Whale the Biggest Thing There Is? Robert Wells exposes the size of the universe in understandable terms. The largest animal on the earth is the blue whale. The average blue whale is about 26 meters long. It's about 75 to 80 feet long. Or if you want to picture it, the peak of this ceiling is 26 feet, about three times as tall as this ceiling. But the blue whale isn't anywhere near as big as a mountain. If you could take a hundred of those blue whales and put them in one large jar, you could put millions of whales inside of a hollowed out Mount Everest. But Mount Everest isn't nearly as big as the earth. If you stacked a hundred Mount Everests on top of one another, it would just be a whisker on the face of the earth. And the earth isn't anywhere near as big as the sun. You could fit one million earths inside the sun. But the sun, which is a medium-sized star, isn't anywhere near as big as as the red supergiant called Antares. Fifty million of our suns could fit inside of one Antares. But Antares isn't anywhere near as big as the Milky Way is. Billions of stars, including supergiants like Antares, as well as countless comets and asteroids, make up the Milky Way galaxy. But the Milky Way galaxy isn't anywhere as big as the universe, and I don't have a picture of it. It's too big. (laughs) There are billions of galaxies in the universe, and yet, filled with billions of galaxies, the universe is almost totally empty. The distances from one galaxy to another are beyond our imagination. And God made this simply by speaking it into existence. The psalmist says in Psalm 8, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, it has the picture of someone just doing a little finger work and going, and there's the universe. He is bigger, stronger, and wiser than us. And these pictures give us just the smallest of glimpses into God's greatness and into God's grandeur. One of our problems, however, is that while we believe in God, we have a tendency to create Him in our image. 
That is, we tend to think about God in human terms. He's, he's bigger and he's stronger and he's wiser than us. But like us, he has limitations. Frankly, though, we would never say it and certainly not say it here. Functionally, we live very often as if we have a little God who, while great, is not infinitely great. And when thinking such thoughts, such blasphemous and heretical thoughts, we need to be reminded of some of the extravagant stories of the Bible. And in two very brief verses in Hebrews 11, verses 30 and 31, we find two related stories of the greatness, the magnitude, the infinitude of God. And these stories are designed to correct our little God thinking and to give us boldness to live audaciously and courageously in a world that very often is against us. There are stories that were designed to correct the little God thinking of the original Hebrew readers of this letter, and they were who were tempted to, to leave their faith in Jesus Christ and to return to Judaism. And he says, oh, by the way, all those who you want to go back to under Judaism, they persisted in their faith in God and did not leave their God. And this story is a reminder to us as well that God cares for his people in every situation and in every time. He was trustworthy to Joshua and the nation as they circled Jericho. He is trustworthy to Rahab and her family as they hid in her home on the wall. And he is trustworthy to us. These two simple stories remind us that God is trustworthy because he is great. You can't say large enough words to communicate The greatness, the magnificence, the magnitude, the infinitude, the broadness, the depth of God's character. And so you sum it up with that simple word, he's great, but it just falls woefully short of what he is. But what we should see in this is that because of his grandeur and greatness, he is trustworthy. In these two stories about Jericho... The writer offers us two demonstrations of God's unchanging greatness. The circumstances in the two stories that relate to Jericho are the kinds of situations in which not only Israel was prone to despair, but we are prone to despair. Maybe we don't have those exact circumstances, but we have parallel circumstances in our lives. And we're prone to giving up in those circumstances And the writer is reminding us that we should not give up, that nothing can overwhelm and circumvent God's care for us in those circumstances. God is trustworthy because he is great. The first lesson given to us in the story about Jericho is that God's greatness provides protection in the hardest of circumstances. The writer is really sparse in what he says in these verses about the stories, isn't he? And he says almost nothing about the difficulties that were faced by the Israelites after they crossed the Jordan River. We understand that this isn't the first time that the nation of Israel had come to the land of Canaan in order to take it. In fact, Numbers chapter 13 recounts the first time that they came. They came not at the Jordan River, but they came up from the south. Uh, from Egypt, and they got to the land. They got to a place called Kadesh Barnea. They sent in 12 spies. 
What's the land like? What should not 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 should we go in? But what's the land like? What can we expect? What can we anticipate as we end up there? And the twelve spies came back, and they were all unanimous. It's it's a magnificent land, flowing with milk and honey and and large fruit, and it's it's a wonderful place to live. But ten said we shouldn't go in, and two said we should go in. Remember that Numbers thirteen. We went to the land where you sent us. Certainly it does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. They're giants. They're big guys. The Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. They're enemies all around. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up with the people. They are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw there are men of great size. Therefore, there we also saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. They're giants, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. They went in the land and they saw all the beautiful things that God had promised to give them in the land. And all they saw was obstacles. And now they're there again. That whole generation died off except for Caleb and Joshua. Every one of them died in the wilderness because of their rebellion. And so now they're there again. And friends, nothing has changed. The giants are still there. The enemies are still there. The fortified cities are still there. And what are they going to do? They came first across the Jordan River. Once they crossed the Jordan and in like fashion to crossing the Red Sea. And they came to Jericho. Jericho there is right north of the Dead Sea. Um, It's the first city across just a few miles across the Jordan River. Um, it was not an overly large city. There you see a picture of modern-day Jericho. And there is the tell on which ancient Jericho would have existed. Um, it's estimated that they would have been able to circle the city in about 30 minutes walking around it. And yet, while it was not an overly large city, it was well fortified. So there's the remains of One of the walls, you can see how wide it was, and it's easy to understand how they would have been able to be an apartment at the top of that wall. That round column at the front was perhaps a corner pillar. They estimate that that column would have been about 25 to 30 feet tall. It was well fortified. Joshua tells us in Joshua chapter 6 that even though it was small, it had a king, so it had leadership, it had a structure And he says also in verse 2, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. Not just warriors, but valiant, strong warriors. The wall was thick, as we have noted. There was an apartment on it, uh, multiple apartments evidently. Rahab lived in one of those apartments. It certainly would, this city certainly would have contained some of the giants that would have lived in the land 40 years earlier. And it is notable, it is notable that there is no indication that at any time in Joshua 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, that the nation 
is fearful. So Numbers 13, the entire nation dies because of fear. Now Joshua 6, and no one is fearful. And yet, the nation isn't fearful. But catch this, chapter 2, verse 9. Rahab came up to the two spies on the roof, and she said to them, 2-9, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us. So the nation isn't fearful, the nation of Israel isn't fearful, but the nations inside the land are fearful. And that's repeated throughout this account, that the nation was fearful. In Hebrews chapter 11, the story of Joshua, the story of Jericho, is given to us to emphasize the greatness of God and the care of His people. As you read through the account in the Old Testament, what you find repeatedly is that God will provide God will provide. God will care. Right before Joshua enters the land, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, one of the last things that Moses says, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 3, It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you just as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them just as he did to Sion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. God will destroy them. God will destroy them. God will provide. We find the same thing, Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 5 where it says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, God says to Joshua. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. Now, you're going to be the warrior, but I'm the one giving. And we find all the way through this, all the way through Deuteronomy, all the way through Joshua, God is providing. In fact, the report of God's provision was not just known among the Israelites, but the report of God's provision was also known among the inhabitants of Jericho. So Rahab says in chapter 2, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted And no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven, above and on earth beneath. So even the inhabitants of Jericho understood that God is behind. God is the one who's providing. God is the one who's caring. That that, yes, there are a lot of people who are invading the land. But they're not the ones we need to be worried about. God is the one that we need to be concerned about. The nation, when they had crossed the Jordan River, pulled out stones out of the, out of the River Jordan, and they built a memorial as a reminder to them that God is the one who provided. God is the one who got them across the Jordan River. God is the one who would provide for them in the land. The captain of the Lord's hosts Chapter 5 appears to Joshua. We think that's probably a pre-incarnate Christ. And it says to him, Joshua says to him, uh, chapter 5, verse 13, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, rather, I come now as captain of the host of the Lord. 
Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. He's the captain of the Lord of hosts. He is the one who will be victorious. He is the one who will provide. He he is the one who will provide for the people. We just see this over and over and over and over again. This is God's work. This is what God will do in, in the troubling situation, in the trial, in the difficulty, in the overwhelming odds, in what you think you can't accomplish. What God has called you to do, God will do. And frankly, the whole plan of Jericho's destruction demonstrated that this was the Lord's work. We saw it in chapter 6, verse 2. I have given Jericho into your hand. We see it in verse 16, the seventh time when the priests blew the trumpets. Joshua said to the people, shout. Why? Because the Lord has given you the city. We saw it in verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. So from the beginning of the story in chapter 6 to the end of the story in chapter 6, it's God who's providing. It's God who's caring. It's God who's giving them what they need. And an audacious plan it was, wasn't it? So chapter 6, verse 3 tells us, get the men of war and circle it. Just walk around it. Uh, but don't just get the men of war. Chapter 6, verse 4 tells us, uh, lead off with the, with the Ark of the Covenant and the priests carrying it and have them bring seven trumpets of ram's horns and blow those trumpets as they're walking around and not another sound, just the trumpet sounds And the marching of the feet. And so they walk around in that way. Not just just being led by the soldiers or led by the priests, but then having the soldiers. And then verse 7 tells us that there's another group of unidentified people, just citizens, I guess, following after the soldiers behind. And six days they do that. Now, think about it. it you, you saw the picture, right? It's, it's small. So Joshua says in the morning, Hey, gang, get up. Let's go march. Shh, quiet. Just the ram's horns. Takes them about a half hour. They walk out. They march around at half hour. They go back to camp and they sit and wait another 23 hours. Six days they do that. Seventh day, they go around six times. So, I don't know what, three hours, maybe a little bit more. And the seventh time... They blow the trumpets and everybody shouts and everything falls down. Not a tactical plan that some of our greatest military strategicians would have come up with, I don't think. Why? To prove it's not about your plan. It's about the provision of God to care for you, to give you what he promised. He said he would give you the land. He will give you the land. And it doesn't matter how fortified the walls are. It doesn't matter how big the soldiers are. This isn't about you. This is about Him. This is about His greatness. This is about His provision. This is about His ability. This is about His care. It's it's not unlike what they did before they left Egypt. He says... 
Take a sacrifice, sacrifice the animal, typically a lamb. If you don't have enough for a lamb, take another animal, do another animal like a dove and take the blood and put it on the doorpost and that'll prevent the angel of death from coming into the house. There's nothing inherent in that blood that repels the angel of death. And there was nothing inherent in the shouts of the people that made the walls fall. It wasn't the shouting that made the walls fall. It was God's grace that restrained the angel. It's God's grace that made the walls fall. And I want you to notice this. You know, we, we say often about Israel, how rebellious and ungodly and how frequently they turned away from God in all these things. The nation did not once protest, complain, or disobeyed. They completely fulfilled God's command to the letter all the way through this chapter. There is no suggestion that they did anything against the Lord's command in defeating the city for an entire week. Now, I do know chapter 7 is coming. And there was a problem with one guy, and that created a problem at Ai. But in this chapter, we see the complete obedience of the people. While they greatly numbered the people of Jericho, the same circumstances that had previously led the people to be fearful, to grumble, and to rebel against God existed. Nothing changed. Well, the people changed. <laughs> People of Israel, God died off one generation, killed off one generation, another generation rose up. But nothing else had changed. Everything else in the land was the same. The outward circumstances had not changed significantly, but they changed. Particularly now, they had confidence in God that led them to obey Him. Which, frankly, is one of the messages of the book of Joshua. It's a book of victory that says God is victorious and you can trust him and you can follow him. And that is exactly why the writer of the Hebrews is inserting this. You can trust God in in circumstances that seem way beyond your ability to cope with them. He will provide. Let me give you three implications from the story of Jericho. One. Trying circumstances are beneficial because they reveal our source of confidence, our source of joy, our source of refuge. When we become fearful, it evidences what we value and what we trust. Do we find our confidence in ourselves? Or do we find our confidence in the one whom we cannot see? Remember 11.1, faith is a conviction of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I can't see God, but I know, I trust, I believe. And the circumstances of Israel, both at Kadesh Barnea when they rebelled and now at Jericho when they obeyed, they both demonstrate, they both reveal where their trust is, what they're believing, what they're hoping in, what they're holding on to. Second implication, trying circumstances do not mean we have to be fearful. Israel faced the same trouble two times. Once she was fearful, once she was faithful. And the writer is reminding us through these stories that it is always possible to be faithful 
and not fearful. And it's also reminding us that God can transform us, right? Because he took a nation that was afraid, an entire nation incited by ten fearful men, and he has transformed that entire nation into an obedient, faithful nation. Brothers and sisters, our circumstances may be hard, and they may change and become even harder, but God is always unfailingly and unchangingly faithful and great. Remember chapter 13 of Hebrews? Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I'll never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Do you have trying circumstances? Yes. Undoubtedly you do. But you don't have to be fearful. You can trust the one who has put you in the midst of those circumstances. A third implication. Trying circumstances may not end what we would call well on earth. But they will all end well in heaven. That's been the whole point of Hebrews 11, right? Chapter 10, verse 36. The theme that leads into the chapter, he says, You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. God will take you home and He will give you what He has promised you. Hard circumstances are hard. They're weighty. They're burdensome. But they are not definitive and they are not final. And they are for our transformation, for our sanctification, and ultimately for our glorification. Whether we live or whether we die, God is great. And He can be trusted in every circumstance. He'll give us the protection we need. There's a second lesson about God's greatness in these verses. And as in verse 31, God's greatness provides salvation for the worst of sinners. Hebrews 11 is all about flawed people and a great God. It's a story about weak people whom God has used in extraordinary ways. It is not a story about great people. It is a story about weak people, flawed people, broken people that God used in great ways to demonstrate you can trust him. And yet even as we recognize weaknesses in people like Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and all of those men had flaws and we, we see them in the scriptures, yet we still recognize that they are men that God used in remarkable and great ways. We can look at them as heroes of the faith as it were, men whose faith is worth imitating as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. And then at the very end of that list of faithful people, God inserts one last name. This is the last named faithful person in this chapter. And he takes what appears to be a sharp left turn. And he says, by faith, Rahab. And just in case we forget who Rahab was, he identifies her by profession. Rahab, the harlot, who was this woman that jumps into this story unexpectedly. I say she's unexpected because of who she was. 
She was a woman, obviously. And as in the days of Jesus, women were not highly respected in the time in which she was living. Creation gave equal status to to men and women as image bearers of God. We know that from Genesis 1, verse 27. And one writer has noted that the ancient Hebrews never entirely lost, lost the light of their original revelation and more than any other oriental race held women in high esteem honor and affection so so israel understand god understood god has created men and women to bear the image of god and so they saw that and yet israel was immensely influenced by the cultures around them and the intrusion of sin left women in typically precarious positions both in the world and in israel as one Encyclopedia about those days says the ancient world was a man's world. And so by her gender, Rahab was an outsider. She also was one who had sinned in a particularly offensive way. There's just no nice way to say it. She was a prostitute. She is the first person in this narrative with what we would say had an unsavory reputation. She's not... She's not the kind of person you put in a list like this. Don't you know that, writer to the Hebrews? Some have attempted to soften what the word harlot means. The historian Josephus said that she was an innkeeper. Another said that she was a seller of food. There's just no getting around it. She engaged in illicit sexual activity for funding. That's what she was. Brothers and sisters, this story is a reminder that Rahab is just the kind of person that God loves to save. Jesus didn't move away from sinners like Rahab. He drew them to Him so that He could save them. And that is exactly what He did with Rahab. She's also a Gentile. She's not the first Gentile, quote-unquote, on this list. When Abram was called, he was living in Ur in Chaldea as a pagan. Joshua 24 tells us that he was a pagan, that he was an idolater. Um, And so, like him, she was outside the covenant people. She's not just a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. She's a pagan worshiper. She's also an Amorite. It's a race of God, a race of people that Genesis 15, 16 tells us was under God's judgment. They're under God's condemnation. So she comes as a Gentile. She comes as a pagan worshiper. She comes as one who is underneath the wrath of God. In every conceivable way, She is an outsider. There is no reason to anticipate her inclusion in this list. In every conceivable way, she is an outsider. And she had faith in God. And God made her an insider. What did she do? Well, Joshua chapter 2 tells us what she did. The writer of the Hebrews Um, synthesizes it and says she simply welcomed the spies in peace. So the spies come to the city. They go to her house. There's no indication from the text why they go to her house. Uh, All we can say is they were probably sovereignly led there, but we don't know how or why God took them there. They came to her house. She hid them on the roof. Um, She came and was questioned. She covered for them. 
And then she let them out and they escaped. Side note, don't get wrapped around the axle of, well, she was a liar in addition to being a prostitute. And lots of ink has been spilled about what to say about Rahab and her harlotry. Just remember this. It wasn't just a generic lie. This is an act of war. She's turning traitor to the nation of Jericho or the city-state of Jericho. And she is abdicating. She's leaving and, and turning tide and going to Israel. She's hiding the spies as an act of war. And in war, we don't tell secrets. So in June of 1944, Eisenhower didn't call up Hitler and says, Hey, by the way, just to clue you in what's going to happen tomorrow. Why? Isn't, wasn't he a liar? And not telling Hitler what he's going to do? No, it's an act of war. And that's what this is. It's an act of war. So she's not lying in the conventional sense. She's keeping a secret, but it's a secret that needs to be kept in order for the preservation of the nation as an act of war. That's a side note. That was free. So what did she do? She protected them when they were suspected. That's verses 3 to 7 of chapter 2. She acted in faith and she believed God. And then in verses 8 to 14, it's clear. She is turning to faith in him. Verse 11 is the heart of that. He is God in heaven. Excuse me. He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. He is God everywhere. It almost sounds like what Paul says to the Philippians, right? Every knee um, will bow. Those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. She's saying everywhere he is, he is God. He is Lord. And she is submitting to him. And then they told her to do a number of things. And verses 15 and following of chapter 2, we find her doing everything that they told her to do. And as a result of her actions, the writer of the Hebrews says she did not perish along with the disobedient. That's interesting. Rahab, the harlot, is not considered among the disobedient. Now, if you think about disobedience, don't you, don't you automatically say sexual sin is in that category? Well, well, yeah. But her faith and trust in God wiped the slate clean and moved her not on the basis of anything she did, but moved her from one who was considered disobedient to one who was obedient. And notice as well, the contrast in Hebrews is between her faith and their disobedience. So we can say, when we have faith, we obey and follow. When we disobey, we are demonstrating we don't have faith. So someone might say, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, tell me what you do. How is your life shaped by him? And if you are living in rebellion against him, you don't have faith in him. What's also notable here is that she had the same revelation as every one of the other inhabitants of Jericho. They all knew. She demonstrated. She said at least twice, everyone is afraid of you. And yet only she demonstrated faith. Everyone else in that city could have And should have repented. And she alone was given life. We see that at the end of chapter 6, right? Verse 22. She's given physical life. 
Joshua said to the men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring out the woman and all that she has of there as you have sworn to her. And they went. She's not only faith, having faith in God, but she's, she's like an ancient evangelist, right? And they brought out Rahab. That's what they expected. And her father and her mother and her brothers and everything that she had. She had, she had a house full. It, it, I almost get the sense she's just cramming them in as tight as she can get. Everybody in these walls is safe. So she believes and she leads others to faith as well. I want you to notice one last thing. I want you to notice what God did. God spared her life. God didn't just spare her life physically. He also spared her life spiritually. Verse 25, Joshua 6, Rahab, the harlot in her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. Did you notice the progression? A couple of verses before that, it said they pulled her out and they took her outside of Israel. And now by verse 25, she's in Israel. The writer James, half-brother of Jesus, tells the story of Rahab as well. And he notes this in chapter 2, verse 25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Didn't we see the evidence of her faith through what she did so that she also was redeemed and saved spiritually? That's not all God did. Remember Matthew 1? Matthew 1, birth of Jesus. Right before the birth of Jesus, though, is 17 verses that most people skip over. I love Matthew 1, 1 to 17. It's the genealogy of Jesus. Ram was the father of, of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, the king. She's not only in the midst of the land, she's in the messianic line. She's the great grandmother of David, the king of Israel, from whom the Messiah comes. God didn't just forgive her. He folded her into the messianic line. If you, you read the story and you would just say, that's preposterous. Yeah. <laughs> that's the way God's grace is. It's preposterous. It's preposterous that he saves Rahab. And it's preposterous that he has saved us. But brothers and sisters, all of us who have been saved by Jesus Christ have been saved in a similar way as Rahab. All of us. We're worthy of his wrath. We may not have been an Amorite, but we were just as much under the curse of sin and destined for hell. Ephesians 2 tells us we were children of wrath. We deserved wrath. That was our, that was our lineage and that was our heritage. And just like Rahab, he has saved us. Oh, friend, if you are a believer this morning, give thanks 
and rejoice in God's extravagant provision for you and for Rahab. Listen to what John Owen says, the great Puritan. He says, Rahab is a blessed example both of the sovereignty of God's grace and of its power, of its freedom and sovereignty in the calling and conversion of a person given up through her own choice to the vilest of sins. Nobody, no sin should lead to despair when the cure of God's sovereign, almighty grace is engaged. You are not beyond redemption and salvation. God can liberate you. And if you have been liberated and freed by the blood of Christ, give thanks that like Rahab, you've been folded into his plan. And secondly, it may be that you're here this morning and you are not forgiven. It may be that your sin is crawling all over you and your conscience is condemning you repeatedly and you are burdened and you are weighed down by your sin and you may be thinking, God can't save me. He doesn't want me. He loves sinners. Because that's all any of us are. And he redeems and he buys the sin and he turns it around and he transforms people. He did it with Rahab. And friend, he can do it with you. The question is, do you trust in Jesus Christ for your forgiveness or are you trusting in yourself? And we don't have time to unfold it all this morning. But chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews tell us that Christ offered a singular sacrifice that paid for the debt of all sin for all men who would trust in Him for all time. And if you have sin, and you do, and you've never sought forgiveness, you go to Jesus and you ask Him, will you forgive me? Will you free me? Will you set me on a course to live for you? And He will do that. That's what He does. And friend, you may be here this morning and maybe you're forgiven and you're freed and you're liberated and you have a family member who's not. I think that's probably all of us in this room. We all have family who don't trust Christ. This story should be an encouragement to you. That God can save individuals. The story's not over for your family member, for your friend, for your neighbor. That God can still intervene And still change. Why? Because he's a great God. And that's what he does. In 1715. I don't know if you know this guy. King Louis XIV of France died. It was Louis who called himself Louis the Great. In his exalted view of himself. He said quote. I am the state. It has been noted that. His court was the most magnificent in all of Europe and his funeral was spectacular. His body was placed in a gold coffin and was placed at the pinnacle of the sanctuary and all the lights in the sanctuary were extinguished except for one special candle which was held aloft above above the coffin so that it would shine on the coffin and the beauty of the coffin would emanate throughout the hall. It was a moving and powerful setting. And then Bishop Jean-Baptiste Massillon got up to speak 
And he reached down to the coffin and he extinguished the candle. And he most famously said the only lines that are recounted or remembered from his sermon that day, only God is great. Yes, we are not great. We are incapable, inadequate. We're frequently overwhelmed. Our weakness is granted to us in part to see the greatness and the sufficiency of God. We are not great, but He is great. And He is trustworthy. Whatever your circumstance, whatever the persecution of the Hebrews, He was adequate for them. Whatever the trouble of the Israelites at Jericho, He was adequate. And whatever the circumstances of your life that are overwhelming you, whatever the sin is in your life that has overwhelmed you, He is adequate. You can trust Him. He is great. Father, thank You for this great reminder from Your Word of Your great character and nature. Would you stimulate us by this word to trust you more fully, to be confident in you, and to worship you, to delight in you for your greatness. Father, we acknowledge that we have been fearful at times, worried, anxious, burdened, weighed down. We have run from trouble out of fear. Give us an ability by a comprehension of your magnitude and greatness to stand firm for you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.